Imagine waking up early before work and driving or jumping in a cab somewhere, showing up to have an incredible dance celebration with, oh, a couple hundred to a thousand of your besties before work even begins. Well, that is exactly what my guest today, Radha Agrawal, has created. She's the co-founder, CEO, and chief community architect of Daybreaker. It's an early morning sober dance celebration. It happens in more than 25 cities and over a dozen college campuses with a global community of more than a half a million people. She's also a social um, entrepreneur, actually a serial social entrepreneur. She's done it many times over. Author, DJ, inventor, investor, gifted experience designer, named by MTV as one of the eight women who will change the world. But none of this would have happened had she stuck to her original plan to build a career as a New York City investment banker. In today's conversation, we dive deep into her journey and explore the critical moments of awakening and change, along with the ideas from her new book, Belong, which answers the question, how do I find my people? And how do I create large and meaningful communities in the real world? I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. The show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard-won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com Wondery. That's hubspot.com Wondery. Yeah, I'm usually just doing my Japanese calisthenics at the at home and a two song dance party in my living room. Okay, Japanese calisthenics. You had to tell me what that yeah. is. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm half Japanese. Right. So uh, Radio Taiso, which is like Japanese calisthenics, where in the 1920s the entire country of Japan would do the same calisthenics every single morning together in unison as a country at specific time slots and. 
And so imagine how cool and connected the community felt, the country of Japan felt when everyone's moving together, right? As a community, how that connects you in flow. And then you go to work, but everyone's kind of connected energetically. No wonder Japan is like, you know, I really believe that Japan's success is attributable to Japanese calisthenics. I mean, it's a, there's an interesting argument. That. It's, it's funny because when... I first read that, and then that you shared like, okay, so now you're doing this too. I, I had this flash. I was my team every day at three p.m. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, David oh, Gardner's office. Yeah, it's like a really unifying experience. Oh yeah. But I remember walking around Hong Kong, like probably close to ten years ago now, and I, I I'm an early riser, so just walking around was like really quiet. I was down by the water, and I walked by this park. And there are like hundreds of people yeah. doing Tai Chi together. Yeah, totally. And I was like, this is so poetic. Just like, yeah, yeah I just sat there and I just kind of watched. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I wasn't even moving, but I felt like in some way I was a part of it. Right. And you can join them too. Anybody can join them. And that's what's also really cool. You know, like we uh, we do Japanese counseling sometimes in the park as a team. And like, we'll just invite people to come and do it with us. That's awesome. You know? Yeah. Right. It's not about how well you do yeah. perfection. I mean, like, it's, it's re- honestly, it's actually meant for old ladies sitting down and I do them every morning. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a clip of the video on okay. YouTube that I use, but it's, yeah, it's literally for old ladies up to little kids. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah. So your mom's Japanese. Yep. Dad's from India. Yeah. And you grew up in Montreal. That's right. So you're like this interesting blend of three cultures. Part curry, part sushi, part Canadian, <laughs> Canadian bacon. <laughs> so what's it like growing up in that household? Oh my God. It was, I mean, my dad is like, hello, how are you? You know, my, my mom is like, Ooh, that, you know, like they just like the thickest, beautiful kind of accent. So I got, I have an ear for every kind of, I can tell an Asian from any part of the world, you know, but the household was just, oh my God, full of life. I have identical twin sister and another sister, Yuri. And the three of us were less than a year apart. And our home was like Grand Central Station. My parents were very much proponents of gathering. So we would have, you know, probably every week people over at our house and we would have huge birthday parties every single year that we would invent games for as a family. And uh, that became a tradition for all of our friends for 18 years until we all went to college. Mm-hmm. We would have these summer parties called Agripalooza. My last name is Agrawal. So it was like Agripalooza. My dad had the whistle and he made this whole camp that we would do every every summer. And then New Year's Eve Eve on the 30th, we'd have this like intellectual Olympics that my parents would put on in our house where they'd have quizzes with riddles of current events from that year in every single room where you had to decode different riddles to unscramble these letters to to be the winner of that year's uh, Intellectual Olympics. It was a very entertaining household, and my parents were such creative, incredible parents, and very strict, of course, Asians. Right, because they're first generation yeah, also, Oh, yeah, right? oh, yeah, first generation. So very, very strict about school, about studies, about... You know, school comes first. If you don't get straight A's, or you, you can't play sports. They pulled us out of basketball when I was in high school and like uproar of the high school and my, you know, and it was just like a whole. There's a whole thing, but but you know, I I'm I really owe everything to them. Yeah. What what was? I mean, it sounds like it was a central gathering place, and they loved. It sounds like they really instilled in you this idea of gathering and also celebration. Like it sounds like there was no opportunity for celebration that was missed. Oh my gosh, <laughs> celebration! I mean, Daybreaker is very much a celebration of life. And I think that is so much modeled by my parents and how I was raised. Yeah, it was, I mean, you know, again, there's there's two parts of it, right? So everything was celebrated, but celebrated in many ways, which is also very, again, Asian philosophy of like in 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 winning, in victory, you know? So, you know, we, we definitely were pushed to, success, to, to succeed because, you know, if we weren't the best, you know, 
oh, there was a talking to. No, but I think, I think, I think, yeah, I think everything was celebrated. Birthdays, family life cel- celebrated so much and, and academics were very celebrated too. Mm, so then what was the expectation about you and like the, the three sisters, like you would, you would go to school and then become yeah, doctors. <laughs> Definitely doctors. My dad, you know, until a year and a half ago would say, it's not too late to go to medical school, you know? <laughs> and I was like, dad, I've like achieved a measure of success that I hope you'd be proud of. But I know he is. I know he is. Um, he just came to their first day break. They, my parents both came to their first day breaker two weeks ago. Oh, that's amazing. For the very first time. Yeah. That's so really awesome. cool. So you end up going to school and then you find yourself in New York. Yeah, well, I went to Cornell University undergraduate, played soccer there. I had learned so many lessons just being away just from family and learning how to be independent. Just because, well, I had my twin sister with me, but she, she, she and I go hand in hand for every, right. every conversation. Were you guys both at Cornell together? Oh, yeah. I bunk mates and smooched many of the same guys. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, you know, we're best of friends. So when it, when, whenever you hear like we, you know, we did this, people are always like, who's we? And I was like, oh, sorry, I'm making me, you know, so... The longest we'd ever been apart until we're 21 was eight days. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So I was born in community, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's It's like it was, it, it's literally in your blood. Yeah, truly. So you come to New York. This is early or mid 2001. Two months before 9-11 to the day. Right. And what yeah. was your intention? Why were you coming here? I moved to New York because I first I wanted to live in the city and I got a job as an investment banker, actually. It was also to prove, to, again, to my parents, like, can you tell, like, a lot of my life has to do with my parents, uh, was to prove to them that I, you know, that a communications major and a minor in film and, and business could get a job on Wall Street, <laughs> you know? But that wasn't really why. It was just like, it was my dream to move to New York City. Yeah. And so that got us there with a really, you know, a great way, a great way in. Um, right. So you're both in investment banking then? Yeah. Big, Mickey and I are both investment banking. Starting in like the summer-ish of yeah, 2001. 2001. And then- Two months later. Two months later, 9-11 happens. And boy- Where were, you, where were you guys living at the time? What part of the city? Uh, I was in Brooklyn. I was in Brooklyn, New York. And yeah, it comes right back, right? Like it was a moment I'll never forget as long as I live. We, we had just moved our offices to Midtown. So we, I trained the World Trade Center, and you know our our the the, the secretary whatever of our group uh, comes running in with soot in her hair, and she was just like, I just came from downtown, something's hit the World Trade Center. So you could go rushing down to the fifth floor, um, the trading floor, and we look at all the TV screens and watch a second plane on like fifty TV screens like hit Tower Two, and it was just like. Uh, yeah, it was kind of like it it hit my whole soul too, right? And like that in that moment I knew, right, the mystery of life is you never know when it's gonna end. Yeah. So that moment was like, it's time to pursue your passions right right now. Like what do I care about? You know? Yeah. So investment banking wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing like film background and all this other stuff, that was sort of like, okay, so I've checked that box from my parents. And now- yeah, but you know, I have to say that experience of working hundred hour work weeks for a full year, year and a half gave me the tools to be an entrepreneur. You know, it gave me the, the, the lack of fear of looking at spreadsheets, gave me an understanding of, of business. Even if at 22, I don't understand how they put analysts to work, like, you know, who don't know the first thing about business, but give us all this responsibility. But I learned a lot and I was thrown right into the fire. So I'm very, very grateful for that period of my life, even if it was suffering. I mean, what, what, what do you think is the single biggest thing that's benefited you coming out of that window? Work ethic, for sure. Understanding numbers, understanding my way around Excel, understanding sort of an understanding of of finance in general and, and how and how business works. You know, we were in the M and A sort of department, if you will, a group of of CIBC. So, yes, yeah, so I got to really see you know kind of the inner workings of of how how shit works. 
Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. We have, uh, we were talking before we came on air about you and I have like a, a freakish number of similarities. So <laughs> I was an MNA securities lawyer in a past life and I worked at the SEC. I was actually, I worked down at the World Trade Center before 9-11 when the very first attack happened. And we were, I was at the SEC back then and we were, I literally went out to lunch for pizza and we came back and it's like madness was going on. And then, you know, still a like long time New Yorker when, when you know, 9-11 happened. And it's funny though, because, you know, I was, I went to, by then I was long, long time out of the law. I had done a stint in a large firm before that where I was doing similarly, like I was working with investment bankers. We're all working ourselves to death, to the bone. It was nightmarish. And people, people <laughs> often ask me this similar question. They're like, do you regret all of it? Did like, and I'm like, you know, the one thing that, the most powerful thing that came out of that window was just like you said, it was like, Somebody could put something on your desk and be like, and you look at it, you're like, this is impossible to do. <laughs> and then you do it. Totally. Like you just understand that you are capable of so much right. more. Right. I think I fit, I think we probably both fit, you know, two days in one every day. <laughs> Truly, you know, yeah, that's it, so, that's so wild. Yeah. It's kind of What crazy. was your experience of 9-11? Uh, horrendous. Just like everyone else. I, I was, I was living in Hell's Kitchen at the time and married, new home, three month old baby. And I had signed a six-year lease for a floor in a building to open a yoga studio the day before. And I woke up that morning. I was like, wow, my world is different. And of course, like, like everybody here, like we were all, the first thing we're thinking about is who did, who do we know? Because everybody knew someone. And then I was like, okay, so where do we go from here? And I had a similar awakening to you. I had already kind of like left the path and- Um, but I was about to open a company and I was like, hmm, <laughs> so <laughs> am I actually going to do this? We had, we opened it two months later and it was an amazing community for healing. I mean, are you kidding? I mean, back then too, yoga, I feel like it was still kind of a buzzword. It was. You know? It was kind of like nobody could pronounce the name of their studios. <laughs> it was like- Totally. Yeah. People were a little freaked out by all the incense. And How long did you have it for? Seven years. Um, wow. Yeah. So it was really, it, it was a powerful experience, but, but back to you. <laughs> <laughs> I could interview you. So, so you go from there and this is a wake up call for you. And you're like, okay, so this is like, I've learned a lot from this, but yep. this is like, okay, this is not what I want to spend my days doing. Totally. So, so f- like back at that moment, did you have a sense for what was what you wanted to do? Well, I just, actually, yes. I was like, if I were to die tomorrow, what would I want to do? And at the time, I was obsessed with the film business. Like, that's what I thought I wanted to be in. I wanted to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be, you know, sort of, you know, making, making, telling stories. And and so my entire group was laid off from, from CIBC because we covered, we were M&A, but from airlines, gaming and lodging. Oh, so, so it was like, yeah, like it's like gone. decimated. Yeah, right. yeah. Especially casinos and that whole world, gaming, lodging. So, so, they, so our entire group was, was, was laid off. They put us up at this like outplacement agency where they help you like find a new job and financial what services or whatever. And I go to the lady, it was like my turn, whatever, to be like, you know, interviewed by this woman to be like, where do you want to go next? And I said, listen, lady, <laughs> like I don't ever want to do anything. I don't ever want to be in investment banking ever again. Do you know anybody in the film business? <laughs> and then she said, well, that's not what we do here, but I like you. And we had to, again, a, a, a come back to community again. It's like this rapport, human connection. And we just had a wonderful connection. So she said, look, I have a childhood friend who I, I haven't spoken to in about 10 years, who's an agent for, for some of the top film and television directors in the world, like the Coen brothers and Christopher Guest and Albert Brooks and Baz Luhrmann and all these amazing, amazing filmmakers, film directors. And I was like, cool. Like, right. I, like as she's saying this, like what's happening in your I'm heart? Just like, it's like your heart whoa. jumping out of your chest. Yeah, like, wow. I'm just like, whoa, that would be such a huge, beautiful favor 
that she would do for a young woman, you know? So she connected me with, with this guy, Carl, Carl Forsberg. What's up, Carl? And I went to meet with him and, and I didn't really want to be an agent, you know, like he was an agent, but then him and his partner, Douglas, the two of them just totally just won me over with their spirit and their attitude and their kind of, Hey, like you'll peel back the curtain. We'll peel back the curtain to the entire industry for you, but for TV commercials, not for film, but for TV. So then I got, then I spent six years learning how to tell stories in 30 seconds. So again, a beautiful sort of business school for marketing and advertising, you know, and telling stories and, you know, understanding how to make, you know, Apple computers look beautiful and how to make cans of soda look super delectable, right? Like all this, all these aspects of, of the film, of, of the TV commercial world that you don't really think much of the level of thought and care that is put into every detail for these larger companies. It was was an incredible education to watch and learn from and be around all these incredible creatives who are really lending their their sort of mind to making beer cans look beautiful. So I just was like in awe, honestly, of, of that level of creativity and, and thinking. Um, and it really took me on this whole path of creative storytelling and for as it relates to products. So in the future, you know, that led to, you know, developing when I developed Daybreaker and Thinks and all these other products. I had all of all of this, you know, sort of six years of Yeah, so of you had school. to tell a story for a, product yes. or brand. Yes. Yeah. And and just like and and even things like, you know, the color choices and logo style. Like there's so much around products that 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 brand has everything to do with. And in community building is one of those things. We're talking about that today, but in community, you know, most community builders don't think about brand. You know, they don't think about logos or color palettes or font choices or how much breathing room is around a word or an image, you know, but it matters. It matters, especially today where kids are swiping and adding filters on their social media. So that, that education, that moment in my life really pushed me towards an understanding of, of creative, of sort of the creative storytelling. Yeah, I mean, how powerful to have that experience yeah. at that moment in time. Exactly. So what? So you're so in finance for you know to understand numbers, right? And then five six years of marketing and right. storytelling, brand building, storytelling, brand building. Exactly. So after after five or six years, what makes you be like, huh? Like this is um this isn't doing it for me anymore. So well, in that time, about you know four years, five years into it, um, I was like twenty six years old. I'd moved to Miami. I followed a guy, fell in love, you know, as you do. Met some guy, left all my friends, quit my job, the whole thing. I became an agent for another director out in Miami. And then my sister called me and she said, hey, I'm opening my first restaurant. And and she said, I need help. So I, I went back to New York to help her open the restaurant and, you know, left my engagement, left my house, the whole, you know, the whole, my whole life in Miami that I had for now two years and moved back to New York to help my sister open up our first, our very first restaurant. Okay. So- we can't just jump over that. Okay. It's just like, because so something like, as you said, you and your sister are you know, like tight, 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 yeah. tight. So you felt powerfully enough about like that you were willing to move away from New York, move into it. And then something like you feel powerful enough so that you're willing to basically abandon the life that you had and, and the relationship that you had started building in Miami to go back to your sister. Yeah. What, what was happening it like, was like on divine, a bigger picture? It was here? like divine intervention every time, you know? I really believe that. Like this, I mean, just a wild sort of quick story is that this guy who was one of my clients had hired one of my directors for one of his TV commercials. 
He's a cyclist. I'm a cyclist. Went for a bike ride. He crashed his bike, broke like six ribs, broke his back, broke everything. So he spent like two weeks at the hospital together and we fell in love, you know? And you know, when you have the intense Florence Nightingale moment <laughs> with somebody, you just deeply connect with them. And I just was so kind of in love that I, I said, and I, I needed to escape in that moment. I was, there was just a kind of not the greatest environment at my office as an agent. I just wasn't feeling the purpose anymore in what I was doing. And I wanted, I just longed to have more purpose. So I just made him my purpose, you know? So I moved to to Miami, sight unseen. We bought a house together, you know, got engaged in a year. Building a life Miami, you know, riding motorcycles every weekend, you know, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. But then in that time, I also had this deep longing and realizing that, you know, you can't give everything to just one person. You know, I had a mission and, and, and a purpose that I knew was larger than just me in this, in this life that I was living. And so when Mickey called me, it was almost like she was like, hey, I'm, I'm picking, I'm plucking you out of this potential housewife situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I am throwing you back into the, like the, so I really have. So she kind of like, did she know she, before you that like this, it was time to go? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think she did it purposefully. I think she was just like, I mean, I think yeah, maybe, maybe she did, but I mean, I don't know if it was purposeful, instinctive, divine intervention that came through her that I needed the escape of coming back to New York as well. Um, yeah, it was a mix of things. But yeah, she's always been, you know, sort of my biggest inspiration, my closest ally. So if she needed me, I was going to be there, you know, for her. So she, so she's like, hey, we're opening a restaurant in New York. Yeah, she'd raised the money already for it. The brows, you know, broke ground already. And I was just like itching to support her and, and help out. And so then I moved back to New York. We had these like zany, like hilarious, like marketing schemes to like get people to come into our, our pizza. Like what? Tell me what. Do you oh remember any of them? Yes, of course I do. So one of them was we auditioned for a reality TV show, the ABC, like primetime reality TV show. <laughs> we were like 26 years old, you know, and it was like ABC. It was like, you know, picking eight New Yorkers and giving us a, a mansion on Fire Island and they'll film our lives. And we were like, ooh, free marketing for the restaurant. So we auditioned and got on. And and then spent the whole summer running away from the cameras because it turned out to be like a hilarious drama. But again, you know, a lot of people came to the restaurant because they saw, you know, the first three episodes before it was canceled. <laughs> and then and then another thing we did was we went to the local gym down the street and we tried to do tastings there and they kicked us out. They were like, get out of here. We don't do tastings of pizza at our at our fitness. We're like, no, but it's healthy pizza. It's, you know, and it's organic. And like, what's organic? You know, like back then they didn't know what organic right. was. Totally different than that. So yeah. we, Mickey and I went and auditioned to become spin instructors. And then, so that weekend we got a three-day spin instructor group fitness certificate. And we went back and they didn't recognize me, I don't think, but I probably pulled my hair back or something. But I auditioned to be a spin instructor at the same fitness studio down the street. And they, and they gave me the job. So once a week I started teaching there. And after like a couple of weeks, I said, Hey, I have this restaurant down the street. Can I do a tasting? And by then I ingratiated myself with all the managers and they let me do it. And we doubled our business, we doubled our business overnight. So you literally like became a spin instructor. So like as <laughs> yeah. a, as a marketing channel yes. for the restaurant, I, I, I still love that on so many levels. And then, but then I fell in love with spinning. So I taught for eight years and I had, then one of my students became like invested $80,000 in another business that I started 
called Super Sprouts after I left the restaurant. Mickey and I realized that we're best at cheerleading and supporting each other. Probably not best to be two alpha females in a room together, building and, and uh, growing a company together. And so we, we, for example, we started Thinks together. But then I was like, look, Mickey, I'm too swamped on Super Sprouts, which is my kid's company um, that my student invested $80,000 in. Right. I ran that for five years. And Mickey, I, Mickey and I started Thinks together. So what was Super Sprouts before we sort of just Oh, yeah, yeah, that? yeah, yeah. So, so Super Sprouts, I ran for five years. I raised like $5 million for it. It was like Sesame Street for nutrition education. So I got very deeply interested in, in childhood obesity issues. When kids would come into my restaurant, they would order just cheese pizza on our, in the pizzeria every day after day after day. And I was like, wh- like parents would say, hey, plain cheese pizza, no green stuff on the pizzas. And I was like, what are you talking about? The green stuff is the good stuff. So then I started digging around my investment banking analyst mind came back in and I audited the entire industry. And I'm like, wow, Sesame Street teaches about literacy. Captain Planet teaches about the environment. Dora the Explorer teaches about Spanish language learning. But who's teaching our kids about food? Nobody's teaching our kids about food in a fun and playful way that's not like eat your vegetables. So I developed, I wrote five children's books. I developed, you know, 50 videos. I, you know, worked with Michelle Obama and Sam Cass. And I spent five years of my life building this thing. But, you know, we, we ended up impacting like a million kids all around the country with curriculum. Opened the first salad bar program in Compton as I've ever had. So 120 schools in Compton had their first salad bar program. Opened up in Puerto Rico, like the large obesity epidemic in the, in the world um, is, in, is in Puerto Rico. So like what's driving you through that, through that window of time? I mean, you've got like the intersection of, yes, you're playing and co-creating with your sister. Yes, there's some, there's some seems like some bigger health sort of like thing that's running through everything. Yeah. And there's a process of creation. Yeah, totally. Was, was there, was it just a blend of that? Was there something else? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I think it was also the brainwashing of, again, growing up of like, you must be a doctor, mm-hmm. right? Maybe in some ways that sort of bled into this idea that I don't want to ever be a doctor, not interested, but preventative health is actually very interesting to me. It's a different way in, a much more creative way in to not just putting a Band-Aid on the problem, but to solving the problem, yeah. right? It's so interesting the way we hold on to that stuff from our yeah. childhood. It's like, well, it I keeps mean, sneaking back in. I think in, this is right? probably the first time I've put that together. But I think, I mean, also, to be honest with you, just like watching kids in New York City going from Canada, and Canada has a really healthy culture, to an American society where... Everywhere I turned, there was a, an overweight child, like I'm um, like really unhealthy overweight child, and it was very it was very jarring for me. I actually cried a lot about it, you know. And I just remember feeling just like why. And then I would actually go and ask the mothers, like, hey, just curious, like what you know. And and I learned from these moms that a they live in food deserts, b they have no education around it, c you know they have no time for it. So except you know, so it's it's a mix of all those things that created these these issues and. Um, and the other pieces, they just didn't have a way to, they a way in to talk up to talk about food to their kids, so that was what got me really interested too. But I think so. I think it's a host of reasons, right, that you do anything. But I also knew that I'd never want to bring a child into the world where where they didn't have the tools. I didn't have the tools to give them sort of a very healthy upbringing too. But yeah, it was five years, and I had, and then I was like a whole doozy of of just like a hostile takeover and just like a whole thing of misaligned investors and, and having to to sort of leave the company kind of abruptly, which was one of the most heartbreaking experiences of my entire, entire life, like five years, you know, gone in a flash. But I think, you know, every experience that you have in life, it, it just makes you stronger. And, and I, you know, I really feel like 
all of those tools have led me to where I am today, which is, you know, with Daybreaker, we have no investors. It's just us. We're creating this beautiful community around the world and supported by the community for the community. So it's a, it's a, it's such a beautiful concept that's not driven by EBITDA and next quarter earnings, which, you know, which sort of every single company is, you know, is, is, is under the golden handcuffs of, right? Like whenever I hear my masculine friends being, I just raised $30 million. I'm like, dude, are you that? No, I'm like, but also, no, it's, is you're now with $3 million in debt. Like it's not, you raised, you're now in debt, you know? So I think we, that we've totally screwed up the perception of what fundraising is, you know, and, and I'm very much a big advocate now for really, really thoughtful growth and really, really evergreen sort of year over year. Yeah. Sort of thoughtful um, profitability, you know, and I tell my team all the time, I'm like, if we have kind of an undulating wave, like kind of next 10 years where some years are, 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 are less, you know, revenue generating than other years, I'm not going to freak out. You know, we're, we're going to have a beautiful life together no matter what. And as long as it's sort of slowly going up, you know, that's way better than having hockey stick growth with a very steep and sharp kind of descend. And included in that is an anxiety attack, a nervous breakdown, and everything that I've heard from all of my friends who are Fortune 500 CEOs. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life is an always perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. Good Life Project is supported by BetterHelp. So many of us are going through a lot right now and could really use someone to talk to and friends and family, they can be great. But talking with someone who is truly qualified to help you feel better can be a real game changer. And BetterHelp can do just that. They're the world's largest online counseling service. You can get started no matter where you are in the world quickly. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Then you schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort, privacy, and safety of your own space. And they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel you'd like to try someone else. BetterHelp also gives you access to an incredible range of expertise, which might not be available where you are. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid may be available. So visit betterhelp.com slash goodlife. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash goodlife and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And as a special offer for Good Life Project listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash goodlife.
it's so interesting that the, the stories we tell ourselves about what yeah. success means in the world of entrepreneurship totally. and founders, especially because most of that is coming out of the world of tech these days. Mm -hmm. And it's like a couple of years back, somebody, you know, Amy Hoy coined this term entreporn, which, <laughs> which, which I love. It's so good. You know, because it's really, it's like everyone wants to tell these crazy stories about like, yeah, the team were like crazy, crazy, crazy. And then boom, we exploded and we're a new, we're a unicorn. And then we exited a gazillion dollars. And it's like, but, you know, you're telling the story of like, you know, one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of, of the people who go into it. And and also it's- You're, you're modeling like, the wrong reasons. Right. Yeah. It's the wrong reasons. And it's, and most people get destroyed along the way. And, and is that really why you're here? Right. Like, even if you make it, I, like, I'm sure you've seen this too. So many, I know so many people that have succeeded by sort of traditional metrics. Their ROI is what it needs to be. They're returning to their investors. They're setting up for exit. And they are miserable going into work at the company that it's they've built every day. I'm like, I'm like, what, what, how is that success? I know. No, that's, and I, and I, I, it's, that's exactly it. And I, and I think I've seen that now enough times. And I've also been the victim of that myself in my previous companies to know I'm, and I'm so young still to know that that's not, I've, you know, more than half my life and my career left, way more than half my my life and, and career left. And it's just exciting to know that I've made so many of those mistakes early on. Yeah, just get them out of the way. <laughs> yeah, like misaligned investors. We'll, we'll, like, we'll you know, make plenty more. more yeah, leading with fear, not with abundance. Like I led a lot, my, my one of my businesses, Super Sprouts particularly, I was like live, living with, leading with such a fear-based mindset, not an abundance-based mindset. What was it fear of at that point? Fear of going out of business, fear of disappointing my, my investors, fear of, you know, disappointing myself, fear of being a failure, fear of not achieving the goals of Super Sprouts to eradicate childhood obesity, fear. There's just so many fears, right? And, and I mean, and, and also just, yeah, I just, just, and also fear of not loving exactly what I was doing every day, you know, and, and wanting, willing me to sort of love going into work every day, but feeling, but just feeling so micromanaged by my investors and, and, and what I, that, that I just was so scarred by it. And then now, you know, when I came in to Daybreaker and I built the, the team there, it's so, it's just, it's just like such an, an a complete 180 no investors, no stress of, of the quarterly or weekly or <laughs> daily phone calls like I used to get. The buck stops with me, you know, and, and my, and my boss is the community, you know, and so that's, that's, that's such a mindset shift. It's such a sort of a purpose shift and it keeps me totally authentic to the mission, you know. So share what, what, what exactly is Daybreaker and how did that come to be? Cause we kind of left the story at, okay, yeah. so. Well, then things started. Yeah. Right. Well, so, okay. Just a kind of quick segue. Then, then during Super Sprouts, we launched things as a Kickstarter project. Uh, Mickey and I, you know, we were heavy bleeders. We're Indian, you know, Japanese and just like heavy bleeders. And we'd be in investor meetings all the time and just have these embarrassing moments, leak stains, you know, whatever. So we, we sort of got our curious hats on again, like we do often together. And we started just tinkering around and calling up different manufacturers in China and sort of melding, you know, molding fabric, getting fabrics together to invent the kind of the first ever, you know, period underwear solution and launch on Kickstarter 2013. And we've seen ads like all over the subway yeah. in New York at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's when sort of my sister took over and, and led the team. So, so she and I and our friend Antonia kicked it off, started it off. And then I just was so sort of bogged down with with super sprouts that I just didn't have time to give to, to things. And so 
she and Antonia took it over. I mean, I'm still, you know, third partner. I'm still a partner in things, you know, and and founder and, and, and inventor of the underwear. But it just, I'm so in, in honor and and in awe of how my sister took the took the idea and built it to what it is. You know, so so you go from investment banking to media, entertainment, film, TV to restaurant industry to media, media health, nutrition, children's and and education to underwear. To underwear. <laughs> and yeah. so there's I mean it's kind of astonishing. It's like do you feel risk? Yes, that's what's interesting, right? Like I I do feel risk, but I do also know one of one when I see it. Right? So my sister and I always say is this one of one? Mm-hmm. So the pizzeria, it was the only organic farm-to-table pizzeria in New York City in 2005, where we served different gluten-free crusts, you know, different sort of dairy-free cheeses on the pizza. There's, you know, there's what, you know, what is it? We eat 100 football fields of pizza every day, but yet there's not a single, but yet one in four Americans are lactose intolerant, and yet we there was no lactose-free pizza in New York City. So we were like, okay, we're one of one. So no matter what, we're serving a niche client, right? Super Sprouts was one of one. There was no Sesame Street for nutrition education, right? And all of them, by the way, are social enterprises. Like that's something that's also the through line of everything that we do. The underwear, one of one. Super, yeah. So I think it said Super Sprouts, one of one. And then Daybreaker is one of one. So everything that we create isn't just an, another T-shirt with another logo on it or like a new kind of sock or a new kind of shoe or whatever, you know, other than if the sock is like, you know, is like has some ballistic heel or toe or whatever, you know, kind of added to it. But yeah, I think that's really what we look at is like, how can we continue to be the first to market with the first of its kind of product or service? Like Daybreaker. So Daybreaker is an early morning dance community. We wake up at 6 a.m. at sunrise before people go to work on a weekday morning and people dance their butts off without substances. So no alcohol, no drugs, no... And we serve green juice, coffee, and tea. We we replace the bouncers with a hugging committee. <laughs> you know, we add performative elements. So imagine at 6 a.m. when you just got out of bed on a Wednesday morning before going to work, you see fire spinners and aerialists and break dancers and a horn section and dueling violinists and acro yogis, you know, kind of jumping in the air and and then a thousand people exalting and dancing. And that's Daybreaker. And, and the idea was, and you know, so the first hour is yoga, the second two hours is a dance party. It's a three-hour experience. And the whole idea is to just, deeply transform your day and then transform your month before the next one, you know? And the whole idea is that we live life that is so routine and, and our entertainment experience right now is at night nighttime only when we're tired and we don't have, we're hopping ourselves up on, on drugs and alcohol because we are exhausted. The energy of when you walk into an environment like a club is, is very different. So like I'll walk into a nightclub or whatever and I'm the energy levels of every person there that they're emanating is is very is kind of all over the place, right? So it's jarring for me as an empath. And the morning when you go to Daybreaker, everyone's energy is the same. It's optimistic and bright and fresh and new, like right from their bed. So it's just like this vibration that I can't even explain unless you have to just come and be there. So we blew up. We we launched in two thousand thirteen in New York City. We had our first one in New York City, and I have my community to to, to thank for that. So like, you know, the the big kind of backstory there is. You know, after the after the restaurant, after there's so many moments where I was like, "Where are my people at?" You know, and then 30 years old, and that's the beginning of my book, "Belong." You know, I look myself in the mirror and I realize I didn't belong, and that I spent my 20s in sports bars or hanging out with people who are inspiring, and then 
really, you know, taking the time to get intentional about my community, which I also read on your website mm-hmm. is a big part of what, part. yeah, is what you're about, intentional community. And I just kind of create these exercises for myself and, and really began this quest for where are my personal people at before I go out to build my next business or my next community or my next whatever it may be. I first have to feel fully safe and in belonging and, you know, in my own life, you know, I think so many people in community building that I've seen are looking for answers outside of themselves, whereas the answers start from within first. And so many of the communities I've been interviewed have said to me that they feel like outsiders on uh, looking in on the communities that they've built themselves. Yeah, totally. You know, and so for me, you know, I, I learned all those lessons early on in my career and just in my 20s. So I just knew, okay, this is the time to be generous and with my energy, generous people who I meet, if I love someone instead of just hoarding them to myself, I'll introduce them to other people to make sure that ever. And then all of a sudden there's a community that will be built if like-minded people meet each other. And yes, they might hang out without me, but I'm not going to feel FOMO, <laughs> you know? And so I think there's that level of trust and 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 generosity that you have to have and just saying, fuck it. Like, I'm going to introduce as many people as I can to each other. I'm going to just open up my roll decks so that everyone can connect with one another. And that was the beginning of of this incredible community journey for me, which then led to Daybreaker and which then led, led, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the, like your other businesses to a certain extent were, okay, I'm going to take what I see and take my skills and I'm going to scratch somebody else's itch because I can see the itch and maybe nobody else can. Whereas this was very much like you're scratching your own itch with Daybreaker. Like it grew out of that, which is like, it's, that's a change for you. Well, Thinks was too, actually. You know, Thinks was born out of the fact that I didn't have a solution for my own heavy bleeding. <laughs> but but yes, I mean, I think that all the businesses that have succeeded for me have been the ones that I've personally suffered, you know, from yeah. as well. And I think that's actually a really, an important note and distinction to share with, with all the listeners is, is just start with what sucks in your world. You know, what is it you're struggling with? That's my sister's mantra is, is what sucks in your world. You know, does it suck for a lot of people? And then can you be passionate about this issue cause or community for a long time? So, yeah. Which is funny, again, because when you go back to the traditional business world, they're, it's entirely focused on what sucks. You know, but of course they use customer like, or product market fit <laughs> right. as, as like the blah, 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 boring right, version of what right. sucks in your world. Yeah. But the passion side also, like what I would call product maker fit, like it, everyone ignores that. It's like, but nothing's going to get you through the really hard times. And everything you try and build, it's going to, even if it starts easy, at some point it's going to suck for you. It's going to get brutally hard. And if you don't have that inner thing, like that deep sense of connection to it, you're going to bail. Totally. And that's the thing. Like I looked at, I looked at Daybreaker when I started that and I just was like, I literally will dance until I die. Like I will be 99, the old lady with the dentures. Hopefully by then there'll be like bionic teeth, right? you know, and I'll be the one dancing on the dance floor with my brand new bionic, you know, joints and stuff. But, but I think, yeah, I think this is something, I'll, well, I will do Daybreaker for the rest of my life. And it's something that I, I feel so excited about bringing joy and silliness and playfulness to the world. Yeah. I mean, like it's grown now. We're 25 cities around the world. Right, we're a incredible. community of half a million people and we're not stopping anytime soon. Like we're on, we're now on college campuses as well. We're really focusing on the fact that college students are really dealing with an alcohol and, and drug abuse issue and a depression anxiety issue, largely related to the alcohol and drug abuse issue. You have a 17 year old daughter and she's in school and I'm sure that she's probably having to shield herself from that all the time. So, you know, we've taken, you know, my, my, my fiance's younger brother, 
you know, had three friends commit suicide because, you know, when they were in college, turns out, you know, suicide is contagious and they were dealing with depression, anxiety as well. There's lots of stuff happening. And so for me, my dharma is is truly to bring more play and, and kind of spaces for people to gather and connect and dance. And do it safely. And, and do, do it, it in a safely. way where it's like elevating rather than numbing. Yes. And, and so much of also the conscious world can be very serious, you know? And, and I think that's the other piece that I've been very focused on trying to kind of not stay away from, but but I think there's a lot of judgment there too. I think it's interesting, you know, you'll go to yoga class and and the and the person next to you be like, you're too close to my mat. <laughs> you know? And I'm just like, oh sorry. Which in New York is like a quarter of an inch. <laughs> I know, I know. And so so it's like I just always ask myself, okay, well what is conscious anyway? You know, what is a conscious community anyway? What is a conscious human anyway? Is it just going to yoga? The act of going to yoga, does that make you a conscious person? Is the act of eating from Whole Foods make you a conscious human? Or is it actually the you know, sort of the interest in connecting with others? Is it the interest in connecting with your planet? Is it the interest in talking to someone in the street who's homeless or whatever it may be, who's experiencing homelessness? So I've, I've, I've learned so much from the Daybreaker community about what conscious actually means. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about, you know, talking about being conscious, but actually living in it. You know, our community members, I watch them every time at Daybreaker and I'll see, you know, someone come, you know, who could come by themselves and three community members would go and introduce themselves, you know, kind of unsolicited, not by, not asked by any of our neighborhood community member, neighborhood team to go and do that. But I just watched that level of generosity of spirit happening constantly at our events. And that gives me so much hope. Yeah. And that's amazing. And, and that comes, I mean, that comes from you. It comes at, at its source. It comes from you. It comes from the people you send, but it's also it comes from a lot of the ideas that you share in your book, you know, because I think on occasion, you know, stuff like that just kind of randomly happens. You know, we were talking a little bit, we've for, for five years, we've run this summer camp for grownups and, and, and I've been to enough events, enough gatherings and stuff like that. And I've walked in and felt instantly uncomfortable. Totally. <laughs> Where, because I'm not the per- type of person that walks into room like, hey, I'm here, let's party. It's just not, it's not my wiring. So we become hypersensitive to like, what are the touch points that we need to create? What are the values that we need to have in place? And like, that's the work that you've done. And that's a lot of the conversation that you share and that you're sort of like going deeper into. And I want to talk about that, but there's something else that you brought up that I want to circle back to first, because fundamentally underneath all of that is, is self-awareness, self-knowledge. Well, that is, that is literally chapter one of my book is, is gentle self-awareness. You know, I think awareness can actually be quite harsh, right? Like, sir, are you aware of how fast we're going in the lane just now? Right. Sorry, officer. Right. So awareness can be really harsh when you do the work and sometimes you get trapped in your own awareness. Right. So I think gentle self-awareness, being gently self-aware of how you're showing up when you walk into a room, are you bringing the room down? Are you rolling your eyes all the time? Are you being a negative Nelly? Are you being a shoulder shrugger? Are you saying, yep? Are you saying, yes, enthusiastically with with exclamation point, right? Like, how are you showing up? And I think that self-awareness is such an, if that is sort of the cornerstone and the, the first level of finding your tribe is, who are you? How are you experiencing the world? How's the world experiencing you? The first exercise I did for myself was this three column list. Column one was all the qualities I was looking for in a friend right? Column two was all the qualities I didn't want in a friend. Mm. It's all in my book. But column three was all the qualities I needed to embody 
in order to attract the friends that I wanted. So I need to be less of a workaholic. I need to be less flaky. I need to be a better listener. I need to be, you know, more, just like more patient, right? And 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 so that awareness, that self-awareness made me realize, okay, wow, well, I'm it, clearly I'm showing up in this way, which is attracting this kind of friend. So what if I actually went back to the essence of who I am, which is a kind, open, caring, you know, silly person not putting on the air of I'm too cool for school and I'm going to wear makeup and whatever to go out on weekends because that's what all the, everyone else is doing. I'm going to return to who I am, which is this quirky unicorn wearing whatever onesie, you know, like person. And, 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 and then from that kind of space of radiating who I am from the inside out, was I able to actually find the most incredible lights who who were attracted to me too, right? So it really starts from within, and that self-awareness is, is something I work on every day. You know, there's certainly moments every day where I, you know, I can see outside of myself and I'm upset about something or I'm if, if hormonal from being pregnant or whatever, and I know that's happening, and I know I can, I know I can, can be more aware of how I, you know, how I may be sharing my words or whatever to my assistant or whoever, whoever else it may be, my partner. But I'm very, very self-aware. Yeah. And I think that's the first, the first piece. No, I totally agree. And I think, but, but it's so easy to, to sort of, you go to that place, you're like, yes, I'm self-aware. I'm being myself. I'm bringing like all the goofy, silly, whatever it is. And, and now I'm attracting all these, uh, these people around me and they're like, for the first time, oh, they're actually my people. But then there's also... I'm curious whether you found this. Like, I think there are moments where we get a little bit spooked and we find ourselves reverting and like throwing up a bit more of a facade again. It's like we're hiding for some reason. And then stuff starts to, you're like, okay, so I'm not really loving what I'm doing or where I'm around. We don't really realize that the reason is because we just built a wall again. And then people don't want the wall. They want the real Oh my us. God. It's, it was, but this happens to me when I go to conferences. There's particular, some particular conferences, but where everybody's killing it. <laughs> I'm just killing it. Everyone's just killing it, you know? And of course, like, you know, I've, I've worked so hard to shed my masculine sort of like, cause I really I dominated me for so long trying to keep up with men in, in entrepreneurship. After Burning Man, actually, I realized the power in my feminine and my divine feminine. So I really began, you know, shedding the need to show my, you know, be like beating my chest all the time. But I do find that I revert back to my masculine when I'm in those types of masculine environments where everyone's like, how much did you raise? How much did you raise? I ra you know, and, and what can you do for me? You know, right. whatever. Like, what what am I doing? I know. <laughs> and then, and then I find myself mirroring. I do a lot of mirroring and, and then I catch myself and my partner Eli is always like, what was that? And I'm like, <laughs> and, and he keeps me so honest. And I'm like, babe, I don't know. Something came over me, an alien took over my body. I have no idea what just happened, but clearly I was uncomfortable and the person in front of me made me uncomfortable. And so I put on this, this mask, you know, and, and I'm working really, really hard to be fully authentic in who I am at every moment. But that's a daily practice. Yeah, totally. You know? I mean, that's like a lifelong yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, because at some point, something else is going to trigger you. It's totally. It's going to bring you back to that place where, like, eh, totally. Yeah. I just want to be accepted. Like, everybody, we all go there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like this, we're human beings at the end of the day. Exactly. So once you start to sort of like build on this really deep self knowledge, I love the three columns that you made. You also talk about like going deeper into your values and your interests and your abilities yes. and really identifying like that. And like, then you can turn out to the world and say, okay, so 
So I get who I am now and I get what fills me up and I get what empties me out. And now, now let me find people that resonate with that. Exactly. And so it, it's almost like it's a two-pronged thing, what you were talking about. Like when you can stand in that, you start to radiate differently. And then when you, not only that, so you start to just like, there's something about you that people want to be around. That's it. And at the same time, you you have clarity around exactly who is it that you're right, around. right. And also, you have clarity around what you're good at, right? Like I think so often we're like, I'm a meditator, but really I'm ADD and I can't sit still. You know what I mean? So maybe dancing and meditation is better for you. You know, which dance is meditation, movement form. But I mean, let me just kind of touch on the values, interests, and abilities concept. Why? Because I think it's really important as part of your going in process. So my mantra for community building is: you have to go in to go out. You have to go inside of yourself to go outside of yourself. You know, we do this type of proctology exam for our professional lives, right? Like, and we do it for our romantic partners. Like, they have to be perfect. If, whenever I ask my girlfriends, like, what they're looking for, the wealthy, they want to be funny, they have to be tall, they have to be handsome, they have to be this, they have to be that, you know, whatever. And I'm just like, okay, what is their energy like? Like, let's stop looking at the physical. Like, how do they make you feel? You know, what is their energy like? And, and then all of a sudden the, the conversation stops and it's like, oh, right. And it becomes like less about like the transactional thing and it's more about the the energetic thing. So the same thing with your values, your interest and your abilities, like, right? Like you sit down and you actually ask yourself, like, what do I value? And you you kind of have to Google value. Like, what is a value anyway, right? So that's it I have you do in the book anyway. It's like Google, you know, I give you a bunch of values as well, but I'm like, look, there's hundreds of values to pick from. But take the time to write down what do you what are your personal values? What are, your personal, what are you interested in, you know, exploring as a human being? Not what the press and media says, not what your mom and dad want you to do, but what you as an, an authentic, unique human unicorn that you are is, is interested in. And then what are you good at? Like, what are your abilities? Is, are you naturally good at taking out the trash? Because that's an ability that my fiance does not have. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, but he's incredible at cooking and he's amazing at understanding everyone's point of views. You know, he's incredibly patient. He's like so many abilities that 99% of people don't have. And I have abilities that 99% of people don't have as well. And we all have, you have abilities that you know 99% of people don't have. And each of us have these incredible, beautiful abilities. And yet we don't sit down and ask ourselves, hmm, how does that, how can I contribute my abilities to a community? Right? Like, how can I contribute my ability to be patient, my ability to cook, or my ability to take out the trash, or my ability to draw, or my ability to ask questions like you are right now in this podcast? How can I use that ability to deepen and grow my community in a more meaningful way? You use it for your, to build a business. You use it for so many other, again, transactional things. But if you just use your abilities to create community, then all of a sudden it becomes this like wonderful freeing experience, not a stressful, anxiety-inducing experience of where are my people at? You yeah. Know? I mean, it's so interesting too, because I think I wonder often why we don't do that, why so many of us don't do it. Even if we do the self-inquiry and the self-knowledge and we get it, we don't turn around and say, okay, so how do we, how do we find, how do we connect with, how do we contribute to community? And I'm so curious what your thought on this is, because I, I think my sense has been that we don't understand how important belonging in community is until we re-experience it on a true level. Like we, I mean, and you write about this in your book, right? And this is like belonging is a physiological and a psychological need. Like when we don't have it, we wither on the vine and, and eventually die. Yet I don't think we realize that. I think we walk around in anxiety and pain because we don't understand how much this matters. Totally. Is that your experience too? A thousand percent. A thousand, that, that is that is the 
honestly, the root cause of all of our suffering is our lack of belonging. And and there's a few things to add there, but it's like, think about when you leave your mother's womb, you went from literally being inside of somebody else in complete belonging to a like cold, bright, like world where maybe someone took you away from your mother with forceps and now you're wrapped in some foreign blanket. So you literally went from complete 100% engulfed belonging to separation and isolation from the moment you're born, right? The moment you come to the world, you're, you're isolated and you're separated. So you spend your entire life looking for the feeling of going back inside the womb, never to find it again, right? So it sounds morbid, right? But it's not because that's actually the human experience of looking for the womb again. And the good news is it's, it, you can find it again if, again, you understand that that's a, the human condition of our need to belong. We need to find the womb again. And if we can find it, if we can create an environment where we find our, our, our the womb again, then we then we will lead a happy and healthy life. I mean, cr- two crazy stats for you. One in four Americans have no friends to confide in. This number has tripled in the last 30 years. And that Harvard came out with a study that shows that having poor social connections is as harmful to your physical health as being an alcoholic and twice as harmful as obesity. So, you know, it, there's all these studies that are coming out now that show that, you know. Yeah, that it's, it's the center of everything. It's the center of everything. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. In, in your book, you you kind of reimagine Maslow's hierarchy with belonging being like at the base and then flowing through everything. It's funny because I was looking back in my notes from a couple of years ago, and I drew a picture of Maslow's hierarchy as a diamond. Because when you look at it traditionally, there are like five levels and yeah. belonging is in the middle. I was like, no, this is like, this is actually a diamond. Like belonging in the middle is the biggest thing. And then like it goes up and down, but everything emanates from Ladders that. from that. Yes, exactly right. It's the same sort of like I saw your reimagining. I'm like, yep, same thing. Like, <laughs> yes. You drew it a little bit differently. I know. But fundamentally, it's the same stuff. And we just don't. And 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 simultaneously, like while we're, you know, we don't acknowledge it. And then at the same time, all the places where we used to find it, you used to find it in, in the company you worked for, not so much anymore. Right. You used to find it in School. faith-based organizations, in schools. It's all going away. Totally, like a social media. Yeah, so it's like what you're doing with Daybreaker is you're you're providing this like thing which is nourishing on such a deep human level. So here's a quick definition for you that I think would be really helpful for you and, and all your listeners as well. So people use the word community today. Like we need to find community, community. Community is all the buzzwords, all the rage, but it's being bastardized already, like the word organic, you know, like community is now another word for how many users can you get or, you know, how, who you can market to, right? Whereas, so, so I think of community actually as a container for, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a space. Community is a space and a container in which you experience belonging. So belonging is the feeling that we're going after, whereas community is the container in which you experience that feeling, right? So if instead of trying to create community, we're trying to create a community where you experience belonging, that is actually the 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 real antidote to our our suffering on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're so focused on the mechanism yes. rather than the experience the feeling, and the feeling. The energy, yeah, totally yeah exactly, exactly. So when you think about, and this is stuff that you write about, when you think about, okay, so what actually has to be present for you to have that feeling? Yep. What are the ingredients of that so, recipe? Yep. So I don't know if you, um, so I coined this term, which I think is really wild that no one has ever put it together. But I was like, you know, late night, 2 a.m. And I was just like, you know, thinking about what are the ingredients that create the most wonderful, authentic community experience that inspires that sense of belonging. And I wrote down the four happy brain chemicals, you know, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. And what do they spell? Dose. 
dose. Can you believe it? So that it was just like, it's like some scientist put that, but didn't even realize that the word that we use to medicate ourselves, to drug ourselves, right? Dose is actually something that we can access with our own mind if we just practice Jedi mind tricks, you know? Why are those four things important? What is HK? So, so yeah, so yeah. dopamine is the pleasure reward, right? So you feel kind of the dopamine rush when you're accomplishing a task or listening to music. So, you know, Daybreaker, you feel that dopamine rush from waking up at 6 a.m. for everyone else does. You're like, holy crap, it's dark outside. I'm waking up to butt crack at dawn. I'm going to this dance party and listen to music, which is, you know, both of which give you wild and wonderful dopamine rushes. So that's the pleasure rewards. You can get that from anything that you do as it relates to going, creating an event and showing up to that. Like that's the dopamine rush of, of dressing up for the thing and going to the thing. Like there's a rush in, in that pleasure reward, right? The oxytocin you get from touch, you know, it's like, you know, humans are so starved for affection. Americans are the number one porn viewer in the world. And yet we're also the most starved. Like a study came out that on average, Puerto Ricans and Mexicans touch each other upwards of 130 times in a conversation, whereas Americans touch each other upwards of once in a conversation. And yet we are the most porn-watching country in the world. So it just says the Brits touch each other zero times in a conversation, by the way. But yeah, it is a it is an interesting world. So oxytocin we get at Daybreaker. In any dance, in any human to human experience, you're going to get a handshake from someone, a, a hug, hello. At Daybreaker, we have a hugging committee on your way in. So every single person gets a hug. And I actually am usually the hugger now at Daybreaker. So I've probably hugged tens of thousands of people in five years, probably hug 400 people at an event each time before I've, I'm, you know, relieved from my duty, four or 500 people. And I love it because I, people go from this space of like, I deeply needed that to like, thank you, to crying on my shoulder, to looks of bewilderment of like waking up early in the morning, my first time here, I came by myself to, wow, thank you for welcoming me. So it was such, like, I've seen thousands of faces go from kind of lost or sad or whatever to joyful, grateful, thankful. And it just shows how, how much just a simple hug can do for one another. So the oxytocin is actually what makes us human and it is what we need to survive and thrive. And yet we don't have nearly enough of it. So that's the oxytocin release. The serotonin you get from feeling a sense of worth. You get that sort of the serotonin dump when someone's, you know, when you're on Molly, you're like, you're the best. I love you so much. La, 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 you know, but that you can get also just from having an MC at Daybreaker telling you how to stop judging yourself. This is bigger than you. Just dance and let go. We're all here together. We're on this crazy spinning planet, you know, Know. And and we have this incredible trained MCs across the world who really are kind of self-help MCs who help you get out of your shell while also motivating you to have the best time, you know? So that serotonin rush happens from those moments and from really being a, a one person in a bigger community and feeling like, holy crap, like this is such a wild transformative moment to be part of this community of, of sober humans, you know, all dancing and exalting together. And then the endorphins, of course, you get from the runner's high, from working out, from sweating, and you burn upwards of 500 to 1,000 calories, if not more, you know, at Daybreaker, one, twice a month. So in 23 cities all around the world. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so you've come got, find us, yeah. So you've got these, the, these four things, which are all really important, and they're all part of the sort of belonging experience. They're part of the thing where you say you feel belonging. Like totally. Well, there's, a, there's another ingredient yeah. that I haven't shared and it's a, it's a big one. This, this is actually the, the the real sort of trick. It's, 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 
It's a few things. That belonging lives at the intersection of mystery and safety. And that's a little bonus. It's not in my book, actually. I forgot to put that in there, but it's kind of a big one. I was like, crap. But that belonging lives at the intersection of mystery and safety. And what that means is Daybreaker is the reason why we've, run, we've been around for five years already. You know, we're growing leaps and bounds or half a million community members and, and growing thousands every day is because there's the safety in knowing that our events are going to be beautifully produced, that there's a safety in knowing that our food and beverage is going to be delicious. There's a safety in knowing that we're going to have amazing performances and an awesomely positive DJ and great MC, really good decor. Just like the experience is going to be awesome. The people there are going to be amazing. The type of person comes to Daybreaker is an A-type personality who's going to, you know, just it's self-selecting. It's a filtering community. It's not the negative Nancys who want to come and dance at 6 a.m. sober. You know, it's a joyful group of people who want to come and, and be a part of it, or at least an optimistic group of people who also want to change their own lives. Maybe they're having some struggles, but they want to come and change their own lives. So, so, so the safety of knowing that. And then the mystery of where's it going to be next? Who's going to be the DJ? What's the theme? Wait, who are the performers? You know, so we've, we're always changing venues every time. We're always changing DJs every time. We're always changing the decor, the theme every single time. So we live in a time where I don't want to go back to the same place over and over and over again. You know, the attention span of an American is eight seconds or less, millennial more likely. And and so the the the, the idea is that if we can, community can sustain at the intersection of mystery and safety. Mm, no, I love that. It makes total sense. The So you're building this company, you're building this community, you're building this global uplifting experience, and you decide to write a book. <laughs> I know, I felt possessed. Which is, you know, it's beautiful. I, I love, there's the, you can see it's like sitting here on my lap and there are little things sticking out of it all over the place because there's just so much I want to revisit in it. And I, and I do think we are in this moment where, we are starved for belonging and for, for community, but really for belonging. And we don't know how to get it. We don't know what to look for. We don't know what to say yes or no to. And it, and it really helps guide you and understand that. Why, why, would, why did you feel the need to write this now? I mean, like you've got crazy amounts of stuff going on in your life already and writing a book is no easy thing. So what makes you say like, oh, now is time to actually set aside a chunk of my emotional, energetic and personal bandwidth to do this? Yeah, this was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. But I really felt possessed after the elections, to be honest with you. I was just really, it, it felt like 9-11 had happened, you know. And I just felt like I had all this knowledge from five years of building these incredible, joyful communities, having inspired these spaces where people have met their best friends, their wives, their husbands, their roommates, their, you know, just, just the, and, and here here I am with all of these secrets and, People emailing me once a week, twice a week, three times a week, asking to have coffees, which I, which I often did. But one hour coffee is never enough to just share everything I know. One hour conversation with you, even here on this podcast, is never enough. So I want to just, you know, we can talk a lot about belonging right now. But the goal is, hey, if there's something that speaks to you, here's a book in which I literally open source everything. Here's exactly what we did at Daybreaker. Here's the type of container, the space that we've built. Here's our tips and tricks for what we did. Here's our value system. Here's what we've, you know, here's how we've created a robust community. Here's what you can do in your personal life as well to create your dream community. And and I just felt really like suicide hotlines aren't the answer. You know what I mean? Like, like that's what everyone's posting right now is that's the last resort, you know? Like those types of sort of, 
sort of places are last resort places. Like if we can actually teach each other how to belong in this world, we'll never need a suicide hotline, right? Like, again, these types of things become these Band-Aid issues when we can be totally dealing with the root cause early on. So I just felt like, just, I just felt like possessed. I just was like, I just felt like we need, there, there isn't a guidebook, a simple step-by-step guidebook that teaches you exactly how to make friends and build a community from scratch or evolve your community if you have one and want to continue scaling it. And every book I had bought was written in a way that was very academic, was written with just black and white words on a page. And I'm a very visual person. I can't read very well, to be honest with you. Like I was in like, I don't, I get bored. So my book, you know, I illustrated every page as well with my friend. Yeah. And, and, and the whole idea is that the book is an experience in the same way that Daybreaker is an experience. Like you're experiencing, you're participating in the book. There's 20 exercises in the book for you to participate in. You're, I want you to write in the book and get dirty inside of it and rip pages out and share it with friends. And, you know, I want you to, you know, turn the page, really anticipating what the next silly illustration or fun, you know, sophisticated thing I'm going to share or whatever, you know. And I also, I also hit a secret Easter egg in the book as well. It's a key code that unlocks an experience in the real world. So for the first like 200 people who unlock the key code and enter it into belongbook.com, they will have the first access to, they'll be RSVP to this wild event that I'm putting on and I'll be hosting for 200 people here in New York City. So very cool. you'll have to find it. <laughs> I'm not giving any hints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you and I could geek out on so much of this for so long. It feels like a good time for us to come full circle. So we're hanging out here in this this thing called the Good Life Project. So if I offer out the 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 phrase to live a good life, what comes out for you? Oh my gosh, to live a good life is to be sharing it with others who fill your tank up like right? with an equal energy exchange. A good life is is completely shared, you know, truly. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make the show possible. You can check them out in the links that we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode and then share the Good Life Project love with friends. When ideas become conversations that lead to action, that is when real change takes hold. See you next time.